You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I wanted to end the year this year, and this will be our last podcast of 2020. I wanted to end the year this year with a conversation with a friend and a colleague of mine about his book, his thoughts, and how it all relates to the Strong Towns movement. John Pattison is co-author of the book, Slow Church, Cultivating Community in the Patient Way of Jesus. He is also, you might know him as the content manager here at Strong Towns. Every one of these podcasts that goes out is listened to by him and written up by him. So if you've seen any of that, you've seen John's work. John's also my friend, and I'm, uh, I'm really glad that we get to work together. So John, welcome to the, uh, the last podcast of the year. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I feel like it's a lot of pressure to sit in the same metaphorical seat as, you know, James Howard Kunstler and, uh, you know, Gracie Olmstead and some of the other great ones that we've had on this year, but I will try to, I'll try to do it justice. Well, I can't wait to see how you listen to it and then do a write-up. I love all your write-ups, but I'm going to be very critical of this one. I'm sure it'll be long. Um, I'll say in the write-up everything <laughs> I wish I would have said in the interview. Uh, okay. I know part of the book is a inspired by the slow food movement and I'm going to admit, and I don't know if I admitted this to you. It's funny because the first time you and I ever hung out was a road trip. Was it the week you started or the second week you started? I think it was the second week. Yep. (laughs) We ate a lot of fast food on that trip. We did eat a lot of fast food on that trip. You know, some people are foodies and like they can't, they just want to try all these different foods. I have two restaurants I like. Those are the ones I go to. My wife makes fun of me because if I'm making the food calendar for the week, she's like, okay, we can get through Thursday, but then what? (laughs) Because <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not an eater. I, I remember in the early 2000s when I first heard about slow food, I actually made fun of it. I remember making jokes about it, like this is really dumb. This is a really kind of a silly idea. That was before I had kids. I had this like endless list of things going on. The idea of like slowing down and having a slow meal just seemed like a silly thing that other people would do, but not not me. I suspect a lot of Americans maybe react that way as well. Can you talk a little bit about slow food, how it inspired you and why you saw the relationship between that and church life? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks. I would say I'm a foodie because I live with my wife and a housemate who both are tremendous cooks and make wonderful food all the time. I worked for a long time at McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if, if listeners know this, but the McRib is back. And that is I'm like a minor holiday in, in my house <laughs> because I have this uh, this secret love for the McRib. I've had McRibs. I've had McRibs this week as we record this. And so I go into it, though, with eyes wide open, like knowing that it's not the best choice for food. Let me let me interrupt you. Do you feel guilty when you go to McDonald's? Like someone someone who's read your book is going to see you in the McRib line and be like, hypocrite. <laughs> Absolutely. And I live in a small town. I live in a small town. And so I remember one time I was coming out of the McDonald's drive through I was getting a McGriddle and I had the windows down on my car and I was pulling out of the parking lot. My good friend Sheldon pulled in in his truck and he pointed out the window at me and said, 
I think he said something like hypocrite. Like <laughs> I see you there with that McGriddle in your lap. So yeah, totally. That's awesome. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So slow food. That is a good thing to mention because I was actually writing a book first about food, about fast food, about gluttony. An editor that I'd worked with on a previous book was curious about you know what I was working on next. I told him I was working on a book on gluttony. Of the seven deadly sins, gluttony is the one that's most likely to actually kill me. And as I was researching fast food and the slow food movement, I realized that I was finding in slow food some language, some philosophy that was actually resonating with some of the some of my hopes and desires about the church. So I came to slow food actually from fast food. The slow food movement is a movement that started in Italy. There was going to be a McDonald's that was going to open, I think, near the Spanish steps in Rome. And there was a protest and they brought bowls of penne pasta to their protest. And they chanted, we don't want fast food. We want slow food. There was a journalist there who was kind of um, helping to organize this, I believe. This sounds very Italian, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this idea caught on. And so Slow Food was officially formed as an organization in 1989. There was a, I believe that was the year that they signed a manifesto in Paris with international delegates from everywhere. And, And this manifesto denounced what they called fast life, like the fast life that's disrupting all of our culture, our homes, our workplaces, our tables. Um, It's fragmenting communities, it's hurting the environment, and it's doing all of this in the name of frenzied productivity. And so Slow Food's response was, we're going to start at the table. And so the organization Slow Food, which is now an international movement, they set out to promote regional food and drink. These things that were sort of being almost erased by global fast food culture they also felt like like industrialized food is so common that people have forgotten what real food tastes like. So they do taste education all over the world. And this it's a movement that really caught on. And I think it has over 100,000 members worldwide now. And it's gone on to inspire other slow movements. There's slow cities, slow money. And there's even a World Slow Day, which I think I talked about in the book, which some Italians, uh, this is also very Italian, which they celebrated by offering free yoga and Tai Chi, giving out free bus passes and issuing uh, fake tickets to anybody who they felt like was walking too fast or taking too direct (laughs) a route. So while these movements, they differ in scope and size and scale and that sort of thing, but what they fundamentally share in common is their opposition to what the sociologist George Ritzer described as McDonaldization. McDonaldization is the phenomenon by which the values of the fast food industry are coming to dominate more and more sectors of society. And he talked about the four core values of McDonaldization. And these will be really, really, I think, resonant with our Strong Towns audience. He talked about the value of efficiency, which is something we talk about a lot at Strong Towns. He talked about McDonaldization's value of predictability, of focusing on results that you can count. And then on control, which he saw as kind of running through all of the others, I realized that I was seeing a lot of those same values in my experience in the church. The American church seemed to have been just as susceptible as the rest of culture to these values. What is the most efficient, predictable, countable, controllable way that we can get people from unchurched to church, from unsaved to saved? So what Slow Church tries to do is it tries to play off or it's inspired by the slow food movement to ask if the slow food is about how can food retain it, the, the tastes and textures of its place? How can we preserve foods that are 
like unique to the place, foods that like we know where it's produced, we know who's growing it, we know where it's coming from. What does that look like for the church? How can churches be more rooted in the pace and place of their actual neighborhoods? Right. So I grew up on a farm. I love farm eggs. There's something very, very different about a farm fresh egg than there is a store-bought egg. And I, I really can't explain what it is, but it is, it is like one is beautiful and magical and just so full of flavor and taste. And the other one is just very, very bland. I love also egg McMuffins. I mean, you're, you're the McRib. I'm the McMuffin. I, when I'm traveling for work, you know, when I'm flying somewhere, I will often make my indulgence be the uh, the early morning egg McMuffin, and I just I, I love it. And so I, I I feel like there's a certain maybe disclaimer at the beginning of this that because I like farm fresh eggs, and I actually think that those are superior, and I think we'd be better off if we had more farm fresh eggs. I'm not suggesting that enjoying an egg McMuffin makes you a horrible person. I'm Catholic. You are Quaker. I think at times I feel like I'm not a very good Catholic. I'm a go to church on Sunday and then don't think about it for seven days kind of Catholic. And so the idea of slow church is not to criticize people who are are like that, you know, at times. Talk a little bit about what it means, though, to have a slow church. When people listening are thinking through what it means, how is it more like the farm fresh egg than the the Egg McMuffin, and why should we have slow church in our lives? Yeah, you know, one of the like most common critiques that I hear about slow food is that it's primarily accessible only to upper-class white people. I think one of our Amazon reviews said something very similar about slow church. That's so interesting. I would have thought the opposite, but keep going. Well, what I find interesting is that if I was able to have a conversation with my great-grandfather or great-grandmother and explain what slow food is, they would say, oh, that just sounds like food. <laughs> right. And, and I think if I was to explain to them what we mean by slow church, they would say, oh, that just sounds like church. I, like, I understand the critique of slow food, and I even understand the critique of slow church to a certain extent. But I think that there is an extent to where we're saying what we're advocating for is just church. It's just food. It's just church. So a slow church is a church that's deeply rooted in the pace and place of its particular neighborhood. A slow church is one that knows the history of the place, both good and bad. It knows its people. It knows the economy. It knows the rhythm of its place. And more than that, it is known by the community. This is not going to help the critique against slow church, but there's a there is an example we give in the book of the word terroir, which is a word that's most often used to describe a bottle of wine. And it's this idea that there are a combination of natural factors and cultural factors that go into making a bottle of wine taste the way it does. And it's going to differ from a bottle of wine that's made the same year up the road. It's going to differ from a bottle of wine made in a different year. Like it, it is taking on those tastes and textures. We believe in the same way that a slow church is one that is so deeply rooted in the human and natural and spiritual cultures of a particular place, that it begins to take on that terroir of the place. And to put it in a Christian context, like we believe that, and I keep saying we because I have a co-author who is very, very smart, smarter than me, uh, Chris Smith. So what we what we say in the book is that we believe that the church should be a distinctly local expression of the global body of Christ. 
we believe that this is what we're called to like throughout scripture, but especially in the New Testament, there's a, in John 1.14, and one version that I love called the message, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and blood and it moved into the neighborhood. Like that's what we believe that we're called to do as followers of Jesus, like to move into the neighborhood, to make the church flesh and blood in a particular place. Since Slow Church came out several years ago, I've been able to visit over 100 different neighborhoods around the United States and Canada, and I've been able to meet with people and to walk their neighborhoods and to really see like the ideas that we put forward in Slow Church as kind of a hunch, actually seeing these being lived out in real time, in real places. In fact, I think one of the reasons why Slow Church has resonated as much as it has is because it gave language and metaphor to what people were already feeling, to what they were already doing. And so one place that comes to mind is there is a, a church in the Seattle neighborhood, in the Aurora neighborhood. And this is an, the Aurora neighborhood is one that has really struggled. Several decades ago, they ran a highway through the neighborhood and uh, the neighborhood now is known throughout Seattle as being a place of poverty and addiction and homelessness and violence and sex trafficking. And so what this little tiny awake church did was they opened what they called the Aurora Commons. Most of the church members live within a few blocks of the church itself, but they've essentially created a neighborhood living room. And so for a few hours every day, neighbors, whether that's prostitutes, the strung out, the homeless, the poor, the lonely, they have a place to come to where they can drink tea, they can stay dry, they can read a book, they can sit by the fire, they can use the phone. And most importantly, like they can really be seen by people, like have human contact that's safe. This church doesn't have a lot of resources, but it had the, the local credibility, it had the local knowledge of knowing what the neighborhood needed. Now there's a mega church nearby, run by a uh, pastor by an acquaintance of mine, they had a ton of resources, but they didn't have the knowledge. And so this, this megachurch came to Awake and said, hey, like we love what you're doing. What do you need? And they were able to write this huge check to set up a methadone clinic in the parking lot of the Aurora Commons. And so you have like these, these two different types of churches working together, but it was made possible because Awake was so deeply rooted, so known in its place that they had the credibility to be able to serve their neighbors. As you're talking, it, it reminds me, because the, this critique that this is only something for the very affluent, to me, that critique has to come from a place of affluence. Because I, I feel like anyone who's spent any appreciable time in poorer neighborhoods sees that, not in everyone, but in a lot of them that I have been in, in fact, I would say almost all of them that I have experienced time in, and, and certainly, you know, growing up on the farm, very close to family and very close to neighbors who were very low on the on the affluent scale, the idea of working together, the idea of living, I think what as comfortable people today, we would say in a community, but I, I think you would just, like you said, my grandparents would just call it living, was took a lot of time for the things that we now call like the the little things in life or the important... That was what we did. I mean, we we always growing up had an hour, hour and a half meal around the table every day. 
And that would often involve grandparents. It would often involve cousins. It would often involve aunts and uncles and neighbors. A lot of times those gatherings were completely spontaneous. Like we would be making something for dinner and then all of a sudden an aunt and uncle and two cousins would drive in the driveway or, you know, walk on over from their place and you would just say, okay, hang on, we're going to throw some more on the grill or whatever it was. And this was, you know, very, very common. I find now that I am, let's just say in comparison, incredibly successful to where my parents were when they had young kids and what have you. We have to schedule that stuff. It has become something where you can look and say, well, this is only something you can do because of affluence. It's almost like there's two ends of a bell curve where the very affluent and the very poor get to experience this naturally, but this broad swath of America doesn't get to. What what does that say about our culture? I can't help but compare it to what we talk about with strong towns. Like, you know, the, the tension where you have the poor neighborhoods who are that are subsidizing the wealthy neighborhoods, but then you also have the you maybe the affluent people who are moving into the urban core and gentrifying the place. Like are the very poor and the very rich the only people who get to experience, you know, walkable neighborhoods right. and uh, and those sorts of things. I don't know if it has impoverished our culture or if it is a symptom of an impoverished culture. Maybe they're maybe they're reinforcing each other. That that is not the reality for more people. I don't know if you remember this, and maybe this is me asking you a question now. <laughs> I had heard somewhere once that you could tell what was important to a society based on what the tallest buildings were in those cities. I've heard this as and, well. Yes. Yeah. And we were talking about that, and you connected sort of the mega church on the outskirts of town or the large church, the commuter church, I'll just call it a commuter church on the outskirts of town to a big box store. And when I was growing up, I went to commuter churches and I, you know, my family shopped at big box stores every Saturday. We drove from the little town where we lived out to Walmart to get what we needed for the week. On Sunday, we drove from our house to the church in town, you know, 20 minutes away to get what we needed on Sunday. I think that there is some kind of a connection between how consumerist religion has become and how consumeristically, I don't yeah, know, yeah. Uh, we approach our faith and and how we are consumers in other areas of life too. I'm guessing that insight was part of a critique of my own church because we have spent an inordinate amount of money buying up homes in the neighborhood and tearing them down so that we can have more convenient parking around the church. As a Catholic, we have and I don't really know how the Quaker church works as much, but I think the big defining difference between our two phases is that mine is very hierarchical and yours is not. So the idea of sitting down and telling my priest, hey, um, you know that the, the root of the word perish is a Greek word that means to dwell aside. Like we are literally creating a parish of parking lots and we are not having anyone dwell in proximity to this cathedral in the in the core of a historic neighborhood in town. Is this what we want to become? And the answer, and th this is a, a man I love, he's a great guy, was yes. You know, that's what our people's, that's what our parishioners say they want. And it made me very sad because it did feel like a big box mentality moving into my little, and not little churches in like, I want it to be a small congregation of, you know, a close click. I would love more people coming here. We drove in from the farm to town. We never walked. I walk now because I live close to it. But back when I was a kid, we would always drive in. 
on Christmas mass, when the church was full, you may have to walk a block, maybe like a block and, and a tiny bit. This was never like a four block walk. The idea that you couldn't walk a block to be in a great place. I never understood that. I made a joke. I think it was last year that after doing Black Friday parking around yeah. Thanksgiving, we should do uh, we should do Christmas parking, a Christmas hashtag Christmas parking campaign because of how huge the parking lots are in many churches and how even on Christmas and Easter, like they're they're often not full. There's plenty of parking, not too far. I, on my private Facebook feed for a long time, would take photos of church parking lots where they would say, church member parking only, violators will be towed or something like that. And I would just take those pictures and I would do the hashtag WWJD next to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't see those. I think we're, we're coming up with something though. Yeah. I want to be respectful in this comparison, but you talked about how your church is buying and tearing down houses to create more parking. I just want to say like my slow church co-author Chris Smith is part of this inner city church in Indianapolis called Inglewood Christian church. And I can't help but compare what's happening at your church, which I think is far more common than what is happening at Chris's church. After the 2008 crash for years, their neighborhood neighborhood had the highest percentage of foreclosed homes in the state of Indiana. It would have been natural to say, this is a blight on our neighborhood. This is this is really costing a neighborhood. Instead, the church said, how can we approach this as assets? So they started buying up the houses in their neighborhood and they started paying neighbors and people in the church to renovate them. They started renting them out at fair prices. They started selling them at fair prices. And it's has helped revitalize their like the immediate blocks around the church in ways that are really cool. And this church, Inglewood Christian Church, is busier than any church that I've ever been to mother, Monday through Saturday. And it's not that the staff are overworked. It's that, that the neighborhood is constantly coming through this church. They have a daycare. They're starting businesses. They had the Indianapolis's first green roof. Chris, by the way, has written for us a, a few times on Strong Towns, and specifically, he's written about the power of conversation. Their church and their neighborhood has made conversation a way of life. And I think it's important to note, too, that something like 60 to 70 percent of all of the people who attend Inglewood Christian Church live within a few block radius. So like here are people who are actually living in proximity to their place of worship, and they, in every aspect of their life, like their lives are embedded in the place. Like what happens to the neighborhood that the church is in happens to them. So they're implicated in what's happening there too. Anyway, it's it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Your writing is very beautiful. I like your writing. In fact, I don't think people listening probably know the process that you went through to get this job. We have a blind, like a double blind thing we do. And part of it is we ask you to submit writing samples and we read them, but we read them without knowing anything about the person who's submitting them. And we all just thought your writing was beautiful because it is beautiful. Let me quote something you wrote. As much as we are formed by Western individualism, and though we have allowed that individualism to shape the way we read scripture, our calling in Christ is to community to a life shared with others in a local gathering that is an expression of Christ's body in our particular place. The people of God become a sort of demonstration plot 
for what God intends for all humanity and all creation. What does that mean that our call is to community? When you think about that church in Indianapolis, I think a cynic would say, well, believers just want to live around other believers. But even your quote was, you know, 60% of the people go to the church, but that leaves 40% that don't. Are, are they outcast or are they not? Are they part of something else? What, what does it really mean to be part of a community, particularly a community like that, that would be more diverse? Again, I'm speaking from a Christian Quaker context. So I see throughout the Bible, this rhythm of people sort of separating themselves from God and separating themselves from their places and separating themselves from each other. And I believe that we also see throughout scripture that God gathers people together. God is trying to gather people together, whether it was Israel or the church, which I believe is grafted onto Israel. God is trying to gather a people that will embody what God intends for all of creation, which is that people would have a place to belong, that they would be connected, that they would be living in such a way that I, everyone like, would be able to flourish. And those who are sort of outside that that flourishing community are, people can't see, but I'm like, I'm, I'm moving my, my arm in an embrace. Like yeah. they're enfolded into that loving community, place where they can be really cared for within that context. Yeah. I think it's a place where people can belong, a place where people can be met, where they can work together to care for each other in their place. There is a, a word that's probably familiar to many of your listeners and that shalom. And shalom is this sort of this deep peace. And it's not like the absence of war, the absence of violence. It is just like a complete, like everything is right. And we live in an imperfect world, obviously, but I believe that the church is supposed to embody this shalom and then work toward that shalom in in its place. It's interesting because as you're describing this, I'm thinking how a lot of Christian faith focuses on on just that, on, on faith, on belief. What are the things that you believe and espouse? And, and we have creeds we recite in church and, and all this. But I think about the church as a, as a parish, as a community. And even the Catholic faith, I have never heard faith as like a prerequisite for being part of that embrace, right? Like we don't, we don't have a, a, an oath you have to say to get in the door. And when there's a, a food drive or a, you know, a sharing of a meal, we don't say, Hey, like, if you don't believe ABC, you, you don't get in. And it kind of feels like you're taking that and expanding on that to a degree. Yeah. I've heard this said before, and I really like it that I think many churches, including some of the churches that I grew up in, they had this approach that you have to believe before you can belong. And I actually think that what you see throughout scripture and Jesus modeled this beautifully that you could belong and then as a like, path to believe. Yeah. A belong as a path to belief. And frankly, belong as a path whether you reach belief or not. Like it's I believe that that's ultimately not up to me. Like there are things that I can do because I want people to to be connected with God and with their place and with each other. But if I can just enfold them like into into that beloved community and walk along that path with them, then I think that that's what I'm supposed to do. Along those lines, I don't think I'm making any you know, radical statement to say that it feels like our society is very polarized. 
we just got through an election season this year. And, and I know we were talking about this in January and February, how I just wish 2020, we could have skipped it. And that was before the pandemic, just because I was so not looking forward to the divisiveness of an election. You wrote about, and I had never thought of this until I read it in your book, you wrote about the Apostle Matthew as a tax collector and the Apostle Simon as a zealot. Yeah, sure, I knew those things, but I never really pondered how antithetical in the time those two things would have been to each other. It wouldn't have been Democrat and Republican. It would have been radical right-wing this and radical left-wing that. I mean, they, these were two very diametrically opposed, yet Jesus chose them as apostles, and they followed him as equals. What kind of lesson can we learn from this kind of diversity in, in the Jesus movement? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And actually, I should say, like, like neither Chris nor I are professional theologians. We're not professional pastors. We wrote this book as lay people for lay people. And so we've been surprised that the book has ended up in seminaries and, uh, you know, all of these places where, and that we're hearing from so many pastors. But my understanding as a, as a non-professional theologian is that one was seen as an agent of empire and the other wanted to overthrow that empire. And they're both being called by Jesus into this little band of, of apostles and not only were they, and it's not like they were showing up to Sunday service once a week. It's not like they were tolerating each other, right? Yeah, for an hour a week. No, like they were living together. They were sleeping next to each other. They were eating together for three years while Jesus was alive. Like they were together, you know, pretty much all the time. They were neighbors, like they were neighbors. And to me, it is a reminder that the vision that we're given of the church in the New Testament is not one of monoculture to kind of go back to that initial food, the food metaphor. It's not one of monoculture, but rather one of reconciled diversity. And we talk about this in, at Strong Towns when we compare the complex with the merely complicated. Like a merely complicated version is, uh, you know, tolerating each other for an hour and a half on Sunday. The complex version is, no, like you are living life with these people. You're having to figure this out. I've used the metaphor before of, of a rock tumbler. And I feel like living in proximity to one another, both as a neighbor and in the context of, of the church, like you're in this rock tumbler together and you're being turned and turned it over and over again. You're, you know, kind of hitting against one another and it's often very, very difficult, but in the end, it's that proximity and, and the difficulties of that proximity that ultimately, like, that's how we're going to shine. We need to learn to live life. And, and I would say we need to learn to love and work with people who are different than us. I am so concerned about how like our country is clustering into these different enclaves of people who look like you, think like you, believe like you, you have the roughly the same amount of wealth that you do, all of these things. Because then when we have to come together, we're just not practiced at it. It's one of the reasons, too, why we end the book talking about the importance of the table. The chapter title was Slow Church as Dinner Table Conversation, because we believe it's in eating together and learning to talk well with each other that all of the different sort of highfalutin abstract concepts of slow church really come together. Like it's there at the table where you have to figure it out. That's where the rubber meets the road. Growing up in a small town, but living in a small town now, I've talked about grocery store aisle accountability. 
if I have a conflict with my neighbor in this small town, there's a really good chance that I'm going to run into them in the grocery aisle. And so I'm more motivated to work things out with them. I think that that is kind of the vision that we're given of the church too. People who are not just worshiping together once a week, but are living life with one another and figuring out how to be good neighbors. And then showing that, like being that demonstration plot for the rest of the world. And frankly, if the church can't figure it out, who can? Who can? It's in our bylaws. It's in our mission statement. If we can't figure it out, then I don't know that it's right for me to expect other people to. Yeah. To me, the uh, the hard thing about being a Christian is following the example that's been given us, right? And to me, this feels like one of the hardest ones because I. it's very easy. It's very seductive to look at the other or the, the people who may disagree with you and say, if we can just assume absolute power and crush them, then we can have peace. And really that was the way of the Roman empire. I mean, that was the, that was kind of the antithesis of the path that Jesus was, was laying out for us to follow. It's tough because the church itself has become the Christian faith as a broader thing has become in some ways become the Catholic church was politics for a thousand years, you know, but I mean, in today's context, I think sometimes when you say I'm a Christian or I'm a Christian and a voter, there's a certain set of embedded assumptions as to what that means or what that should mean. I wonder if we can break out of that and become what we're called to become, which I, I don't think is a Democrat or a Republican. I feel like it's a, it's a Christian, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I hope so. And I think that those assumptions are made from outside the church and they're made inside the church too. And I am doing my best to confound those expectations. Yeah. So I wrote this down. I started to write some thoughts and, and then I wound up with this, a Quaker and a Catholic walk into a bar and I thought, what, what is that joke like? And I'm like, well, that, that would be a pretty subtle, if there's a punchline, it's going to be pretty subtle because I don't think the Quaker faith is very demonstrative. The Catholic one is not. We started this thing a few years ago where we redid some of the creeds, some of the sayings in church. So literally my whole life, it's been one way. If you talk to my dad, he remembers when things were in Latin. Anyway, some of the new creeds, we actually have this point where we take our hand, our, our fist, and raise it to our chest where we're talking about, you know, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, like I am a sinner. And it is a very awkward, it took a long time for people to do it because that level of outward demonstrative uh, thing is just not very Catholic, you know, where we don't do those kind of expressions is very weird. Because of this, the times that I've spent with evangelicals has been very interesting to me. In the army, we'd be allowed to go to church on Sundays, but they often didn't have a Catholic option. And I would wind up at a Baptist church or something like that. I've had friends growing up and I would go to church with them and they were, you know, some non-Catholic, but but oftentimes a more evangelical kind of thing. I played in a rock band in the 1990s with some friends and one of them invited us to come play at his church. And so we were literally playing like the Blues Brothers at Sunday Mass. I'm like, this is insane. Like I've never experienced this. I have to say that I really admire some of the the way that these evangelical faiths are able to speak very openly, very clearly, very confidently to others about their faith. Like I admire that. And I wonder sometimes if I lack the faith or I lack the confidence to to be like that. Part of your book 
though, touched on something that I also feel. And, and it's, it's a gentle critique of a growth church kind of mindset. And I don't think that evangelicalism and growth have to be the same thing. But in my experience, they've often had a strong overlap. How does a slow church mindset, the idea of a slow church, how does that respond to this call that we have to go forth and, and make disciples of all nations, to be evangelicals in our faith and in our practices? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much of the church growth movement, which was and maybe still is the dominant approach to growing churches in North America. I think there has been some serious soul searching, even among some of the big mega churches, about the consequences of the church growth movement, because a lot of it, frankly, smacks of colonialism. And a lot of the principles were developed overseas, where you had Western missionaries going in to developing countries and uh, growing the church and basically saying, if you want to be part of the church, you have to leave these people. You have to dress like a Westerner. And it was all about erasing differences, sort of finding that homogenous, I I don't even want to call it a common denominator, but like, you know, trying to have this homogenous group of people to reduce all of the friction that comes with differences. And like I said before, I believe that the vision we're given of the church is not one of monoculture or homogeneity, but one of reconciled diversity. And so a slow church approach to making disciples is is highly relational. It takes context into account. It is satisfied with a slower way. I grew up in evangelical churches where we were taught to go door to door. You know, we'd go on these missions trips and I would go out with tracks with friends and evangelize and hand out tracks and try to evangelize. And I remember once feeling like I got so close to having this this woman I met randomly at a park. I'd given her a track and kind of taken her down the Romans road of salvation. I felt like she was so close to saying this prayer that would sort of get her on the other side, you know, that very efficient way. At the end, she decided not to. And I remember walking to the bus where all of the other youth group members were waiting for me and just feeling like I had failed. This woman's going to hell. It's all my fault because I hadn't said the right words. And what that's a tremendous amount of pressure to put on a 16-year-old right. <laughs> talking to a stranger. Yeah. Not about, uh, let me sell you an encyclopedia or something. It's, let me change your entire life trajectory. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. A slow church way is like, Again, very it's very relational. It takes that context into account. It doesn't want, try to erase differences, but rather celebrates them and celebrates them for the complexity uh, that makes the world and like humans and life so interesting. And we believe, we talk about this in the book, that, that the kingdom of God, if, or however you want to talk about, that that redemption is taking place very slowly often. Um, it's happening block by block. It's happening neighbor by neighbor. There's an Amish farmer who I have a lot of respect for. His name is David Klein. And I read something that he wrote about how to get the next generation of farmers into farming, how to convince them that it's a, it's a worthy career, a worthy vocation for their life. And he said in part that you have to woo them into it. Like you have to show that they can make a living from it, but you also have to romance them into it. You have to show them that it is a, like, it's a, beautiful and worthwhile life. 
and where I am now, like handing tracks and trying to convince somebody that I don't know uh, to change their trajectory of life while we're standing next to the slide on the park and she's there with her with her daughter playing on the slide. Like that's just, I don't, that doesn't work for me. I don't think it really worked in a very resilient way before anyway, but I'm much more interested in wooing somebody into a community where they can belong and, and be loved. I feel like in my own path, the believing part was like the easy part. That was the part I was given everything else about trying to be the type of person, the type of Christian, the type of, of father, husband, what have you that I want to be. It gets so much harder every step, right? It's, it's not that it's almost like the idea of growing just, you know, we have a thousand people in our congregation. We have 5,000 people in our congregation. We have 10,000. I think about my own experience and it, it is, the first step was so easy. Each step becomes a harder, in some ways, in some ways it becomes an easier burden, right? I think that is, you know, part of the the yoke of Christianity is that it, it, it does make a lot of life easier, but it makes it easier by making a lot of it more intentional, a lot of it harder. I don't want to throw shade on the evangelicals because I don't stand in judgment, but I do stand in confusion at times because it it does seem often to be more like the big box approach to faith than what I feel like we're called to do. And I should say that I am still an evangelical. I don't think that evangelicals necessarily want to claim me, but I still claim it for myself, even though it really gains me nothing. But I am, and this is a real thing, I am an evangelical Quaker. I'm part of a yearly meeting of evangelical Quakers. And I actually think that the tension between those two things, the evangelical and the Quaker, that that's where a lot of energy is. It's in that tension. There's a a term I love from ecology, and it's the word ecotone. And it comes from a Greek compound word of oikos, uh, meaning, uh, I think, home or house, and uh, tonos, meaning tension. And so, an ecotone is a place of tension, and it's this place where two distinct habitats come together, and in that overlapping space, you have a lot more uh, resources. It's more interesting. It's more diverse. And I think trying to navigate the tensions of the ecotone of being an evangelical Quaker, it is more difficult, but it's also more interesting. And I think gives me more resources when, you know, navigating life and navigating being a person of faith. The the subtitle of your book talks about the patient way of Jesus. I know most scholars think that Mark, the gospel of Mark is the oldest of the gospels. And it's interesting because when you, when you read Mark, you get this impression of Jesus both as ridiculously patient, but also as kind of a little bewildered and, and maybe even annoyed by how, thick-headed, close-minded, kind of dumb sometimes the apostles are. It's like, do I have to tell you this again and again and again? Can you talk about the role of patience, both in the example of Jesus, but also in the everyday practicing of faith? Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a great question and a good insight, because I think of Mark as almost the most revolutionary of all four it's of the Gospels. It's my favorite of the four, Yeah, just personally, right? There's a wonderful book by a guy named Ched Myers uh, called Binding the Strongman. 
And he, do you I know that book? Oh, I, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Well, you might also be interested in another one of his books if you haven't seen it. It's a little pamphlet that he wrote called Sabbath Economics. No, I have not heard that. Um, yeah. Okay. So back to the back to your actual question. I think that that is a really yeah, it's a really interesting question. Our word patience. You know, obviously, we think of it now as like being willing to wait for something. My understanding is that the Latin word patientia is probably more akin to our word long suffering. And I think that you definitely see Jesus in his long suffering self in, in, in Mark with his apostles who just so often just miss the point completely. They don't get it. And there's Jesus like long suffering alongside them. I think that that is very relevant to what we've been talking about, about what it means to be the church and what it means to be a neighbor. We live next to people who are challenging. I think it's good that we do because like they're the people in the rock tumbler with us that are making us better. I think that it is important that we learn to be long suffering in the church and with and as neighbors. There's a good chance that I'm as frustrating to them as they are to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I think I think we whether we're talking about as as Christians, as neighbors, as citizens of a very divided country, I think we should all tap in more into the long suffering example of, of Jesus. There's a couple of things that you do regularly or you did before the pandemic regularly that I've just been astounded by amazed. I will even go a step and say jealous of one of them is the community meals that you have in this huge, broad community of Silverton. Can can you talk about that? Because I, I think a lot of people will be astounded by this because it, it is so different than how we think about organizing life in most of our cities. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you asked this. I love this. One of my favorite things about Silverton, Oregon, where I live is that we are a town that eats together. We have a Monday night meal that's run by one church. Actually, it's a church where my housemates attend and one of them is a pastor. And they serve about 150 people every Monday. We have a Saturday lunch at one of the Lutheran churches. I don't know how many people they serve. And then we have a Wednesday night meal. It started back in 2008. Their goal was to serve 25 spaghetti dinners a week. Not long after Slow Church came out, and I think I talked about them in the book. I actually can't remember. Not long after Slow Church came out, this Wednesday night meal celebrated its 100,000th meal served in six years. So obviously they're doing more than 25 meals a week. It is a collaboration of four churches, multiple community groups. It draws rich and poor alike. It's set up in such a way that you have, most. it's mostly small tables of eight, about eight chairs per table. And so every week when you go, you're likely to be sitting with somebody different. And I think that one of the reasons why Silverton feels as kind of highly networked and connected as it is, is because we have this tradition where every single Wednesday, one out of every 20 people in town is at Wednesday night meal. There's a teenager there who plays piano. There's a, an older man who walks around from table to table playing the accordion. Uh, Silverton had the nation's first transgender mayor. You had Stu 
at the table with the conservative Christians in town. It's a place where people from all walks of life or most walks of life coming together in a way that is really, really beautiful. And it's it's really astounding. And I remember at the celebration for, for the 100,000th meal, there was a representative there from our local food bank, the Marion Polk Food Share. And he said, our mission at Marion Polk Food Share is to make sure that no one in the community goes hungry He said, but here at community dinner, you come at it from the opposite direction. You've built a community so that no one goes hungry. Now, one of the interesting things that didn't occur to me until a few years later, and I say this like almost as a confession, is that Silverton is a town of about 10,000 people. I think the last time I looked, we had uh, like our Hispanic Latino population was something like maybe 14%. If you go to community dinner most weeks, you do not see a lot of Hispanic Latino neighbors. And so it took me like four years to recognize this, that yes, this dinner is like a, a huge blessing to our community and it's doing so many good things. And yet there are still people who aren't here. And I actually don't have good answers yet for why I don't see as many of my Hispanic Latino neighbors as I would expect. But I think it's there's something to be, said certainly for the routine of the meal, but then also of asking the question, like, who's not here? Who's not at the table where we're literally eating, to, eating with neighbors? The other one that I'm jealous of, and I've asked you about it a couple times, because I, I've wanted to emulate it, and I've just not found the time or the mechanism, is the collection of guys that you have breakfast with every now and then. Mm. <laughs> I live in this house of women. You know, I've got two daughters and a wife. I do have guy friends, but I, I don't know as we really have guy time as much as we, we do. And I, I think sometimes guy time is like frowned upon, like it's some kind of uh, negative thing. But yet I find my time with my friends that are male friends very affirming in terms of keeping me on the path I want to be on as a, as a person, helping me be a good father, a good husband. Can you talk a little bit about just the, the little niche that you've carved out and how that how that works in your life? Yeah, absolutely. I love those guys. Yeah, we call it Old Man Breakfast Club. Before the pandemic, we were meeting every Friday at the local, uh, one of our local diners. It's not fantastic food. It's not slow food. I order the same exact same thing every time. Pretty much everyone does. It's beautiful. Like we talk about life. We talk about Star Wars. <laughs> we talk about, you know, Mandalorian, whatever people are watching. It's just like the conversation is not profound, but there is something about that, about the rhythm of showing up week after week of going deeper into each other's lives. Uh, now we, we, we are staying in touch primarily through Facebook messenger. You know, we have a Facebook messenger thing. That's a Friday routine. And I will say that that came out of another meal that we do every week called Pizza Church. It happens every Friday. My friend Hillary wrote an article about it for Strong Towns a couple weeks ago. In fact, it's going to be on our best of uh, list. And that's where all of our families are getting together. And then some other folks every Friday for homemade pizza at Hillary's house. And from there, the guys kind of split off into Friday mornings where we get together for breakfast. So we're just, we just love to eat. I guess if that's the one takeaway (laughs) from this podcast is that John loves to eat. 
Okay, well, let me ask you this as a last question then, because I, the week we spent together, your second week here at Strong Towns, uh, was an adventure. I remember getting uh, missing the ferry, uh, not realizing that the ferry went twice a day and we were going to get stuck and uh, not be able to get to where we need to go. And we took a photo of you and I drinking a Mountain Dew together. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was kind of scandalous for a few people who, mm -hmm. who are a little bit judgy about uh, about such things. How, do, how does Mountain Dew fit into the whole slow church kind of slow food, slow mindset? Is Mountain Dew welcome or is it tolerated or you accept the diversity or what, what do you do with a good Mountain Dew? That is how I contribute to the rock tumbler here at home <laughs> by drinking Mountain Dew because I don't know if you know this, but I came home after that trip. And I bought some and drank it Serious? on my own, so like I, without. Wow, yeah, wow, it, yeah, and it, it was one, and it was one of the breakfast Mountain Dews, and it was pretty scandalous uh -huh. uh, here at the house. Yeah, I uh, I feel like I've corrupted you now. I've led you astray. Um, well, yeah, you know, I just I do my part for the reconciled diversity by being <laughs> very very difficult to live with. Merry Christmas, my friend. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for doing this. This has been fun. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and I, I kind of wanted to save it for, I knew you'd be around, so I knew we could do it anytime. <laughs> so I wanted to save it for a special time. So we'll end the year like this, and uh, we'll see everybody back again in the new year, 2021. It will be even better than this year, right? It can't be worse. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think too. All right. Take care. Take care, everybody. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Merry Christmas. Happy end of the year. Happy New Year. And uh, wishing you peace and goodwill. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.